The sermon text for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 12 through 17. Listen as I read God's word. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here today. If you are sitting there and you're wondering what these weird bookish looking things are in front of you, uh, they are indeed books. These are Bibles. We've not had these in the seat backs for uh, just about a year now. And the reason for that is because we wanted to be uh, really cautious. We wanted to um, make sure uh, and be confident that they would not in any way be something that would help spread the transmission of uh, COVID-19. And so we uh, feel confident that that is no longer the case. And we also wanted to uh, purchase new Bibles that were the updated uh, version of the NIV that we preach from so that as you're following along, uh, you'll actually be word for word with what we are. Uh, so we have these here for you. So we encourage you uh, to use those, especially as we are looking at God's word and in the preaching of God's word, uh, we think it's so critically important uh, that you see that what we are saying is not something that we cooked up, because the things I can cook up aren't that good. Let's just be real. Uh, so uh, we, we want to be held accountable to the things that we are saying coming from God's word. And so we think it's essential that we have access to that. And so we encourage you to uh, grab one of those and to use it. And uh, I haven't said this for about a year, but you can turn to page 109 in, those, uh, in the Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you. So uh, for some of you, it may be underneath, uh, underneath on the front, but either way. As we come to uh, this passage of scripture this morning, uh, I'd like to invite you to join me as we pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord stand firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Lord, this morning with these words of the psalmist, we do pray that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for your instruction, for your commands, that you would help us to see its beauty and its goodness, and that as we look to your instruction, that we would be changed into the image of Christ. We ask this in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this is the second week where we are looking at the Ten Commandments. 
And I think if, if most people are honest, uh, this is just not the most thrilling part of the Bible for them. Uh, if I were to do just a brief survey and ask you what's, your, uh, what's a favorite portion of Scripture for you that's been most meaningful or significant in your life, uh, we'd hear maybe passages from the Gospels or from one of the New Testament letters or a psalm or an Old Testament story. Uh, but I don't suspect that there would be very many people who would say, yeah, that part with all the thou shalt nots, that's my favorite part. That's the, that, that's the part that just fills my heart with joy. But what we've been looking at over these last couple of weeks as we uh, look at the law of God and the instruction of God, what we've been uh, trying to help rewrite in our minds is that the law of God is a good gift. That the law of God, the instructions that God gives us here in the Ten Commandments and then in the rest of the Old Testament as it's spelled out, the instruction that God provides for his people is good. It's not there to squash our joy. It's not there to make our lives miserable. It's certainly not a punishment for us. But the instruction of God is there, and when we follow it, it sets us free to live the kind of life that we were designed to live in the first place. And so the Ten Commandments are good news for us. As we began looking at last week, uh, we see that the Ten Commandments can sort of just generally fall into two different parts. Uh, The first part, which is commands one through four, is uh, a part that reorients our life around what is truly valuable and most important. So those first commands have everything to do with putting God back in his rightful place. And, and what they, they instruct us to do is to give our entire, the entirety of our, our allegiance and our affection and our worship to Yahweh and to him alone. So they recreate us, they, they reorient our lives rather around what is most important. But they also, the second function that the Ten Commandments have is they recreate us into the kinds of people that we were designed to be. And so as we look at this second half of the Ten Commandments in Commands 5 through 10, what we see is once again that these commands are not just individual commands to be followed by individual people, but the commands that God gives to his people shape the dynamics of their community. The the Ten Commandments, they reshape the dynamics of our community and our relationships, and they free us to live and experience relationships the way that we were designed to experience them. And so God is reorienting our lives around what is truly important and valuable. And he's also, through his instruction, he is shaping his people into something of a new humanity. Into this new society that exists within the larger society that we find ourselves a part of. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, some characteristics. Following these uh, last six commands here, looking at some characteristics of this new humanity that God is forming. And so uh, we're going to look at six of them because there are six commands that are left here. And I do have to confess, so last week uh, I, I sort of said that we would not have a six-point sermon this week. Um, but I realized very early in the week that that's not really possible. Uh, so I promise it's not going to be a longer sermon than usual, so uh, just chill out for a minute. It's just going to be each of the points are shorter, okay? So we're going to look at these six characteristics of uh, this new humanity that God is forming among us. And I think that sometimes it's, it's, it's good for us, right, to sort of pull back and to see the scope of the thing instead of looking, you know, sort of through a microscope and looking granularly at everything that's there, okay? So we're going to take a very uh, broad picture here and see these six characteristics of the new humanity that God is forming among his people, okay? So here we go. Number one, the first characteristic is this. 
What characterizes us, what's true of us as we embody the new humanity that God is creating is we submit to authority and wisely steward it. Okay? So if you look at verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what this command is really about is it's about being in relationship with someone who's in authority over you. Now, if you're here this morning and you are an adult, it's amazing, isn't it, that as kids we thought we knew better. Maybe you had seasons or moments of your life where you said either sort of internally to yourself or you said to your friends or you said to your parents directly, I know better than you, mom or dad. You don't know anything. You don't know what the real world is like. And then we grow up, and, and, and most of the time, we are proven wrong. Most of the time, we recognize that, you know, maybe my parents weren't the completely ignorant ones. Maybe as a child, I was the completely ignorant one, right? And then, if, if you have the pleasure of having children, it all comes full circle. <laughs> and you get to experience uh, your own rebellion through someone else who just looks kind of like you, <laughs> So that's pretty great. But either way, this command, what it's about is it's about being in relationship with someone who's in authority over you. So there's, sort of, there's two sides to this coin, right? So this command is, number one, it's about children honoring their parents. Now notice the text does not say children obey your parents. And I think the reason is because honoring your parents is sort of the broader category. Obeying your parents is one of the ways that you honor them. Right? So in different seasons of your life, you will not be under the direct authority of your parents. And so remember that the, the people that God is speaking to here are not, he, he doesn't have like a children's sermon and pause out of the Ten Commandments and say, okay, now kiddos, I'm going to talk just to you and then say, obey your parents. No, he's speaking to adult children who still have, everybody's a child of someone. So he's speaking to adults who are not necessarily under the direct authority of their parents, who have maybe moved out of uh, the home or who have families of their own and says, honor your parents. So one side of this is children honoring your parents and part of that is obeying them. We know that because we can look at the New Testament letter of Ephesians and see where Paul says, children obey your parents. But there's the other side of this, too, which is, which is a command for parents, live honorably. Parents, use your authority in a way that is honorable. You see, it's not just that children have to submit to authority. The parents who are also hearing this are under the authority of who? They're under the authority of God himself. And so they, as they sit under the authority of Yahweh, they're seeing, okay, God's authority is good. It's for our good, it's for our flourishing. He uses his authority to accomplish what is best for us. And so as a reflection of the authority that we sit under in God, we then, as parents, choose to use our authority in honorable ways, mirroring the way God does to serve and love our children. And so in the same passage where Paul says, children obey your parents, he also says, parents, don't exasperate your children. So this command is that we submit to authority and we wisely steward it in the areas of life where we have authority. 
So that's the first characteristic of this new humanity that God is forming, is we submit to authority and we wisely steward it. The second characteristic is this. We honor and protect the dignity of human life. Verse 13, you shall not murder. The basis of this command is the fact that every single person is created in the likeness and the image of God. Now, of course, that, the, the image of God in us, the, his likeness is distorted. It's twisted by sin. But that image is still present in every single human being. And we don't have the right to determine when somebody else's life ought to end. They are made in God's image. He is their creator. He owns them. We don't. We don't have the right to, to determine when someone's life ought to be ended or not. Now, I think it's important for us just to recognize for a moment what this do, does and does not prohibit. Okay? So, th this command not to murder, it does, uh, it, it does not prohibit things like capital punishment. It does not prohibit things like just war. And it does not prohibit things like self-defense. And we know that because in the rest of the Old Testament law, those things are, there's provision that's made for those things. But what it does prohibit is the intentional taking of another person's life. And it also prohibits things like reckless homicide, negligent homicide, where you do something so foolish and so reckless and the result of that is that somebody else's life is taken, you are held responsible. So somebody gets behind the wheel of a car after they've had a couple drinks, and they cross the center line, and they hit someone head on, and they kill that other driver. That person is going to be charged with reckless or negligent homicide because their foolishness unnecessarily led to the death of an, another person. And so that kind of thing is, is, that is included in this do not murder. So this is what we're commanded to do here is to honor and protect the dignity of human life. So this command is instruction for us to affirm and uphold the dignity of every single human life. And what it means is that we will find ways to organize our community around the protection of human life and find ways to honor and, and dignify the life that God has given every single person. So that's the second characteristic of this new humanity that God is creating is that we honor and protect the dignity of human life. The third characteristic is this, we submit our sexual desires to God's design. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now what's behind this command, it's based in Genesis 1 and 2, where God lays out his design for marriage and relationships and the like. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you have one man, one woman in a covenant relationship with one another. And we see that this pattern continues throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay, So this is not just a Genesis 1 and 2 thing where it's mentioned in one passage. Throughout the Old Testament, you see that one of the, the metaphors, the dominant metaphors being used to describe the relationship between God and his people is what? Is a marriage, is a covenant relationship. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus speaking about divorce references back to the book of Genesis saying what God has joined together, don't let any person separate. And then the apostle Paul, when he's speaking and saying, husbands, love your wives, lay your life down for them. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says, now just so you know, I'm talking about Jesus and the church here. 
And then you get to the book of Revelation where Genesis comes full circle and you have the bride of Christ, which is us, the church, and you have the bridegroom, which is Jesus himself, being united in covenant relationship. That, that, that Sort of that marriage relationship is consummated in a way. And so this is a pattern. This, this one man, one woman thing goes all the way throughout the entirety of the entire Bible. And what we see as we, as we, as we look at the, the way the Bible talks about marriage is that marriage is a good gift. The Bible says that sex is a good and enjoyable gift from God. It says that children and family and a legacy, those things are good and honorable and and beautiful gifts from God to be enjoyed. And the Bible also not only affirms the goodness of those things, it also says a whole lot about the dangers of taking those things and using them outside of the boundaries that God has designed them for. And so every single time you see someone having multiple wives, in the Bible. Every time you see someone committing adultery, every time you see someone using their sexuality in ways that are not the way that God designed them to be used, it leads to destruction and pain. And so we see that when we take the gift of our sexuality and we use it outside of the boundaries that God has designed it for, it will always bring destruction into the world. It will always cheapen it. It will always distort it. It will always take it and and make it something less beautiful than it ought to be because we take it out of its original designed context. And so this command, not to commit adultery, has implications far broader than just having sex with someone who is not your spouse. It is about us submitting our sexual desires to God's design, and that's what characterizes us as the new humanity that God is creating. The fourth characteristic You guys doing okay? Hanging in there? Fourthly, the fourth characteristic is we respect the property ownership of others. We don't really need to say a whole lot about this, really. Uh, The text says, you shall not steal. Okay, don't steal stuff. (laughs) Right, basically, uh, this text here, what what the Bible assumes is that if you have gone to work, if you have put in the time, If you have fairly earned wages and you use those wages to purchase something or to acquire something for yourself, those things belong to you. They don't belong to anybody else. Now, the Old Testament, as we look at the Old Testament nation of Israel, we see that they are a community-oriented society in a way that we in our sort of modern, industrial, Western, individualistic, Lone Ranger society are not. But the the nation of Israel, they were community-oriented, but they were not communal meaning that everybody owned everything. That's not the way it was. And you see the text here saying, you shall not steal. Assuming that if somebody has purchased something with their own money, somebody else does not have a claim to it. They don't have a right to take it for themselves. And so this command is really about choosing, about us not honoring, not to rather valuing possessions over people. And so the instruction God gives is for us to respect the property ownership of others. The fifth characteristic of this new humanity that God is forming is this. We leverage our speech to promote what is true. Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The specific context that this is uh, referring to here is something of a courtroom situation. 
We just have to remember, uh, anybody seen, anybody watch the show uh, CSI? Any of these other crime-fighting shows like that? A couple of you? We just have to remember uh, that this is, that this context, this culture is long before fingerprint technology, long before DNA technology, long before infrared and all the you know, fancy things that you see on TV that they use to solve crimes and the microscopes and, and all that stuff. There, there, there was no forensic science department uh, in their society. It didn't exist yet. And so a person who was an eyewitness, that was the surest form of, uh, of discerning what actually happened. So the eyewitness testimony of a person would be what, uh, what, made, what made or broke a case. And so we just have to pause and remember the significant amount of power that a person has if they are called to court to be an eyewitness. Depending on what the person was being accused of, a person's life literally hung in the balance of that testimony. Now, a person couldn't be put to death on the testimony of one person, it had to be two or three, but you get the point. The amount of power you have as somebody who is an eyewitness and the potential then for corruption. Well, someone gave me kind of a lot of money to say something that wasn't true. And yeah, it's going to lead to this person being put away uh, for something that they didn't do, but I got to benefit from it. And so the, the significance, the importance, the amount of power that that person has, it also comes with the temptation for a significant amount of corruption. And so when someone would lie in this situation, in this sort of courtroom situation, and an innocent person was convicted, or a guilty person was acquitted based on the testimony of that person, based on their lies, what you see in that situation is a distortion, is a perversion of justice. And this is precisely the kind of thing that God says, you will not have a society that allows this kind of thing to happen. You will be a people who care about what is true. You will leverage, you will use your speech to promote what is true. And so this is what should be true about us as this new humanity that God is forming. And lastly, sixth, we practice contentment with what God has given us. We practice contentment with what God has provided. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now this one clearly, as you read this, this is clearly uh, prohibiting something that is a heart posture. Okay, Coveting is not first and foremost an action. You don't, you don't covet in the sense, that's not an action, it's not a behavior. It's a heart posture. So coveting is, it's desiring something. But it's not just desiring something, it's, it's longing after, it's craving after something that does not belong to you. It's a kind of lusting after or greeting after something that is not yours. Now it's interesting, commentators have uh, for many years pointed out that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, in some ways sort of parallels or mirrors the last commandment, which is you shall not covet. When you covet, what you do is you put something in the place of God. That's what coveting is. Coveting is, is, is longing after something to the degree you're, you're enslaved by it. 
You are mastered by it. You are owned by that thing. And you have, when, when you covet something, when you're mastered by it, when you say, I have to have this, I have to have that, you have put that thing or that person in the place of God looking to them to provide something that only God was designed to provide for you. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that the, that the Ten Commandments are bookended by these heart postures, by, by the practice of idolatry. And then everything else in the middle is commands two through, two through ten only come when we've broken command number one first. When we break commandment number one, we put something else in the place of God that leads to all of the behaviors that are prohibited in commands two through ten. And so you see how these sort of fit together, this coveting. Now we're commanded not to covet, and, and I don't know about you, but as I think about this, I'm not sure that there's ever been a time in human history where it has been easier to covet, where it's been easier to live a discontent life. Companies spend billions of dollars every single year on marketing and advertising and studies and things to get you to become discontent with what you have and buy their stuff. That's how they make a living, is they get you to realize, you know, my life really isn't as good without that possession. It's not really as good without that service. It's not really as good without that convenience. And it's their job to make you discontent. That's... that's you know, sort of a negative way of saying it, but that's essentially what all advertising is, is it's an attempt to get you to be discontent enough that you will purchase their stuff. And we've never had access to people's lives like we've had now. You go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, and you see what people are wearing, you see what they're eating, you see where they're going on vacation, you see into their home, you see how perfectly their children appear to be acting. And when we have access to all of this all the time, it's never been easier for us to see other people's lives and think, man, I wish my life was like theirs. Man, look at the car they're driving. Man, look at their job. Look at their family. It's never been easier for us to look at other people's lives and compare ourselves and live filled with discontent and coveting. It's never been easier before. And since it's never been easier for us to live discontent lives, it's never been more important for us to hear God's instruction to us here, that we are to practice contentment with what he's given us. So this is, this is what defines this new humanity that God is creating. The people of God are to be shaped by these things, and as we do, what characterizes us? We submit to authority and we wisely steward it. We honor and protect the dignity of human life. We submit our sexual desires to God's design we respect the property ownership of others. We leverage our speech to promote what is true and we practice contentment with what God has given us. That's a radically countercultural way of living, is it not? As we take this section of the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, and we sort of bring this, uh, th these two messages to a close here and summarize, I'd like to just, uh, having seen the Ten Commandments as a whole now, I'd like for us just to think about just a couple takeaways from this. Okay, what, what do we take away from seeing the Ten Commandments? The first takeaway is this. The law itself is an act of grace. We said this last week, but this, we cannot say this enough because this is essential. It is critical for us understanding the law. The law itself, the instruction that God gives us in the Ten Commandments and in the rest of the commands that are spelled out in the Old Testament the law of God is itself an act of God's grace. God's, the incredible amount of 
generosity and compassion and mercy that God has on us is that he will not let us stay the same. God makes himself available to us. God gives us his instruction. He shows us the path to where true life and flourishing are found. And so in the Ten Commandments, what we see is that God loves us enough to bring us into covenant relationship with himself. But he also loves us enough to form and to shape our community so that we get to experience life with one another the way that it was designed to be lived. And God loves the community, the neighborhood, the world around us enough to shape us and to form us into this model of a better life, into the model of a better way. And as we live in relationships with people who are not followers of Jesus and as they see the interactions we have and they see how we love one another, and they see how we serve one another, and they see how we care for one another, and the ways that we honor each other, that reveals something to a watching world about who God is and what he's like. And so it is God's love expressed to the neighborhood around us that Elmwood is here, and, and in a way people get to sort of watch in on what the dynamics of our relationships are like. So the law itself is an act of God's grace. It reveals who he is, it shapes us into this community, and it sends us out to live as people who get to bear the name of Yahweh, who get to demonstrate by our community who God is and what he's like. And that's an act of God's grace. The second takeaway is this. The Ten Commandments are a matter of the hearts before they're a matter of behavior. The Ten Commandments are a matter of the heart before they are a matter of behavior. In other words, every single sinful action is the result of something that has happened first within the human heart. Jesus says this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and in doing so, he's interpreting the law for them, and he says, if you hate somebody, if you looked with contempt on somebody, if you despise somebody, and if you're angry with somebody, you've already committed murder inside your heart. If you lust after somebody, you have already committed adultery. So you see that in Jesus' mind, adultery doesn't start when you commit adultery. Adultery is the overflow of a heart that is longing for something, that's longing for comfort, that's longing for pleasure, for relationship, for intimacy. And it expresses itself in the committing of adultery. In the same way, murder doesn't begin when someone commits murder. It's first something that happens on the inside of the human heart. It's an overflow. It's the, the seething of anger and bitterness and resentment that takes place that would overflow and would grow into the practice of murder. So what Jesus points us to here is that every single sinful action is the result of something that has first taken place on the inside of the human heart. And so what this clues us into, Jesus here in the Ten Commandments, or when he interprets them in Matthew 5, he's not saying, okay, I'm going to make it more difficult for you to follow the law. You know, it used to be that it was just about the behavior, but I'm going to ratchet it up. I'm going to up the expectation. And now you're expected to do more than just keep the law. You're expected to have a heart that loves God too. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is showing how deep the sinfulness inside of us really runs. 
And he's saying, you realize that it's not just about adultery. It's not just about murder. It first begins inside of the human heart. And so because we have a heart-level problem, it requires a heart-level solution. The solution to the depths of my heart longs for and craves for things, and I have lived a life where I have said by my actions, by my thoughts, by my behavior, by my words, I've communicated, you know, God, I know better. I know what your instruction says. I know what your word says, but, you know, I I believe that I know better. I'm going to choose to do what is right in my own eyes instead of submitting myself to your gracious, good instruction. We don't need, in that moment, when we see the depth of that's, that's where it all starts. When we see that, we realize we don't need more, ins- more rules to be heaped on top of us. That's never going to solve the problem that exists within the human heart, which is that our hearts are far from God. That is the fundamental human condition, is that our hearts are far from him. And we say, no, thank you, God. I know how to do this. And we choose to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, the law, as we've been saying, is a good gift from God. So please don't misunderstand me. The law is a good gift from God, but the law was never designed to awaken your heart to love God. The law does not have the power to take somebody who is dead in their rebellion and dead in their sin and make them alive to the things of God. What the law does is the law is a good and gracious provision of God. He makes provision for our sin. He meets us where we are. And so the law is good, but the law leaves us anticipating and waiting for something more. The law makes provision, but how how much longer are we going to offer sacrifices? How much longer are we going to kill animals? And it leaves us saying, okay, God, this is a good gift, but is this it? And as we come to the New Testament, what we see is that the mercy and the compassion and the graciousness of God that was expressed to us first in his instruction in the Old Testament, in the law, in the Ten Commandments, that grace and that mercy and that compassion that God has is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. He is the living word. He is the one who fully embodied every single thing that the law required, everything that the law anticipated. Jesus embodied that for us. And it's the grace of God given to us in the person of Jesus that is the only thing that is powerful enough to awaken a dead heart to the things of God. And so what we do is we look at the law and we see the instruction of God in the Ten Commandments and we see it's good. It's a good gift for us. It's an act of God's mercy and his provision for us. But the greater act of provision is the sending of his son Jesus. The greater act of provision to cover the sins of the people and their rebellion and idolatry is not the sacrificial system of the Old Testament with the killing of animals. It's God sending his own son to be that sacrifice for us. And so we look to the law, and we see its goodness. We see everything it was intended to do, and we let it lead us forward to Jesus. And we see that it's only when the Holy Spirit takes that message of Jesus and makes it come alive inside of us, that is the only thing that can turn our dead hearts to life. And as the Apostle Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions, but it is by the grace and the mercy of God that you have been made alive to the things of God. And it's only through the powerful working of the Spirit with the message of Christ that we can truly be made alive to the things of God. And so as we think about the goodness of God's instruction, as we see the purpose of his instruction, that it was designed to 
to reorient our lives around what's most important as we see that it was designed to recreate us into a new kind of people and that it's good, it's an, it, it's an, an act of his mercy, of his grace given to us. When we see that, it makes us say, okay, we want to obey. We want to obey. And so what we do is we look to Jesus, who was the fulfillment of all of everything that the Old Testament law pointed forward to. As we come to the Lord's table today, as we come to take communion, what we can remember and celebrate is that Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, that was the ultimate act of provision for sin that the Old Testament law pointed forward to and left us expecting and waiting for. It is in Jesus that all the ways that we have, not just in our behavior, but at the heart level, in all those ways that we have lived as if we are the one who knows what's best, for all the ways that we have done what is right in our own eyes, knowing what God has commanded us to do, for all of those things, Jesus embodied humanity, and he lived and suffered and died and was the sacrifice for to make provision for that sin. And it's through him and through the powerful working of the Spirit that's at work inside of us that we become alive to the things of God and all of a sudden the, the obedience to God, obedience to his commands is no longer an act of drudgery, it's an act of delight. And so as we come to the table today, we remember Jesus as that greater provision for sin and we look to him and we ask God that he would continue to give us hearts that desire, that long for his instruction and ultimately that we would have hearts that like the psalmist really do believe and live as though the instruction of the Lord is more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And in keeping them, there is great reward. As we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take a moment for silent confession and reflection.